scripture reading for today is in Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one member than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. You may be seated. Well, this morning we continue once again in the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. 7. We come to this section in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus shows just how greatly the Jewish leaders of the day had missed the mark, had understood God's law and what he truly desired from everybody who would follow him. He began this discussion by clearly and emphatically affirming that he had not come to abolish the law of God. He had not come to reveal a change in God, as though God was someone who would change his mind or change his nature. But he came to declare the permanence and perfection of God's holy standard and his nature out of which it flowed. If you remember back to Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. So that is how our Lord and Savior began this section, by removing any doubt as to his relationship with the law of God. And he began in verse 21 just to show how the people, what they had heard, what they had been taught about the law of God was completely wrong. He began a series of statements about what the people had heard about God's law versus what God's intention had always been. Again, he was not bringing something new as though God had changed. He was revealing more of the heart of God and the intent that had always been there. Well, the first example that Jesus gave was of anger and murder. The scribes and Pharisees taught that murder only consisted of wrongly taking somebody else's life. And since that was the extent of the law, they believed themselves perfect in regard to this standard, since they had never wrongfully taken someone's life. But Jesus had a different understanding of what it means to not murder. Jesus revealed that the people of God needed a complete paradigm shift. God was not concerned simply with the physical actions of his people. He was concerned with the state of the heart out of which everything flows. He told them that to harbor anger with your brother, to insult them and to mock them, made a man guilty of murder, guilty enough to be taken to court and even guilty enough for the fires of hell. The broad scope of what God demands in this regard quiets every one of us. None of us can now say that we are innocent of the command not to commit murder, much less to say that we are innocent of breaking the law as a whole. 
Well, our passage this morning continues this new paradigm of how we are to understand God's nature and understand the law that he has given to us. Jesus' words in these verses address fidelity, sins of the mind, and the seriousness of sin in general. While this passage has broad implications that extend out into every area of our lives, the direct context with this passage is within the institution of marriage and sexual immorality. One thing that ought to be very clear to us if we spend any amount of time in the Word of God is that God takes faithfulness extremely seriously. Nowhere is that clearer than in our relationship to Him and in the institution of marriage that He has given us largely as a picture of our relationship to Him. These two are very closely related in Scripture. Often the Bible speaks of idolatry as adultery as unfaithfulness to God by his people, unfaithfulness to him who was a husband to his people. Marriage was designed by God to display the gospel of Jesus Christ and his relationship to his bride, the church. Well, as I considered this text, I was brokenhearted as I reflected on just how numb we have become, even in the church to the absolute desecration of the institution of marriage within our society. We have been so accustomed to adultery and divorce that we have lost any sense of the absolute horror that takes place when the gospel of Christ is mocked and spat upon as marriages which are designed to display the wondrous love for the redeemed are torn apart all around us. I fear that even most professing Christians have little to no understanding of the relationship between marriage and the gospel. And as such, we have begun to feel almost nothing when this great institution designed and ordained by God is made a mockery of. In fact, we have grown so accustomed to it that we have come to expect it and often give undue justification for it. Of course, as a church in this nation, we stood by silently as marriage was undermined time and time again with the advent of no-fault divorce, where adultery was no longer a crime to be punished, but simply an indiscretion that was none of our business. So therefore, a divorce, the breaking apart of that covenant bond in the eyes of the Lord became commonplace, became expected, trivial even. And then a small minority in this nation convinced our society that marriage holds no meaning other than what we give to it. May God grant us, may God grant this nation repentance and forgive our hardness of heart. Because judgment is falling, even now as we speak, upon this nation. Well, I'd ask you to join me in prayer once more as we get ready to approach this very hard and difficult text. Father, we need your spirit 
to show us why it is good and a mercy for us to understand that your law is altogether too hard for us, why your standard is altogether impossible for us, why we cannot we cannot dare ignore your standard because we know the judgment that will come, but we cannot pretend to meet it on our own. Also that it will drive us to your son, to his love, his mercy, his grace because of his great sacrifice. Father, let us hear what we need to hear this morning. May your spirit shake from within us the idleness, the apathy that may be there to renew within us a seriousness about sin, a seriousness about the depravity in our own hearts, a seriousness about the pursuit and the desire for righteousness. Because it is pleasing to our Lord and it reflects the nature of our God. Father, we ask you to move among us that your spirit would move powerfully in us, that would change us and conform us to Christ, that as disciples we might be made more mature by your word as we long for that day when we are completely made mature and we are like our master. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Jesus told those who were gathered around them, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, Jesus knew that the Jewish people, especially the scribes and the Pharisees who were the teachers of the law around them, he knew that they would be familiar with the seventh of the Ten Commandments. The problem was not that they had neglected to remember what God's law said, but they had completely missed its intention completely missed its meaning. The Jewish leaders had interpreted the law as pertaining only to those things that can be measured, either those things that can be done or those things that must not be done. So if a man did not sleep with another man's wife, then he was considered perfect regarding obedience to this law. It was A.W. Pink, he had, said, he had this to say about how the scribes and Pharisees cared for God's law. He said, the religion of carnal and worldly men is merely political. So far as good and evil affect society, they are in some measure concerned. But as to the honor and glory of God, they have no regard. So long as the outside of the cup and of the platter be clean, they are indifferent to whatever filth may exist within. So long as the external conduct of its citizens be law-abiding, the state is satisfied, no matter what iniquity may be seething in their minds." Well, of course, there is a major advantage to this kind of understanding of the law. And that advantage is that man can be righteous on his own standing. Self-righteous men always desire a religion or a standard that they can master, be it ever so strenuous, something they can master of their own ability. It's not really a matter of how hard they make that standard. Truly, the harder they make that standard, the better the Pharisees, they added countless rules and regulations to the law, making perfection appear to be more difficult for the people. And they did that in order that they might show themselves 
always to shine as the brightest among all the people because their works were going to stand out. Their works, their efforts were going to be on display. Of course, the crucial element for the carnal man is that they can do it. That they can do what others are too weak or too wicked to do. This kind of religion enables men to appear righteous to other men, even while their hearts are far from God. This is the nature of the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. And of course, this is the nature of religion of many in every generation. This is not the kind of obedience that God desires from those who would call upon his name. God is not impressed by, he is not satisfied with, or fooled by hypocrisy and mockery. To everyone who believed that they were innocent of breaking the seventh commandment, Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Is it to say that you claim that your actions prove you innocent? but your heart and your mind have already condemned you. In the eyes of the all-seeing, all-knowing God, sin is a matter of the heart and mind. And the actions are merely the outflow of what is already within the heart of man. As we read in Mark 7, 21 through 23, for from within, out of the heart of man, Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a, pers a person. So carnal men only worry about what others can see. To them, if the heart does not match the good works that people see, it doesn't matter in that economy of our perception, the only thing that matters is what can give glory to the man. Its concern is that others see them as morally superior. It's never concerned about what gives glory to God. Never concerned that the heart and the affections of a man should be directed upon pleasing God. Martin Lloyd-Jones Lloyd -Jones put it this way, what we must concentrate on is not so much sins as sin. Sins are nothing but the symptom of a disease called sin. It is not the symptoms that matter, but the disease. For it is the disease that kills, not the symptoms. Well, in the case of murder, and now in our text this morning, adultery, Jesus has shown that there are none who can claim innocence. The breath of the law's demand is so broad that we are all proven guilty. You see, that is the point. The law, perfect and beautiful as a reflection of the nature of God, has the intent of proving our inadequacy in order to drive us to Christ, in order to drive us to our only hope of righteousness and salvation. It is designed to show us the great chasm that exists between our righteousness and God's righteousness. Beloved, that is not a weakness of the law, 
but its great gift and benefit. Well, I want us to understand just what Jesus is talking about when he spoke of lust. We are not here condemned by simple attraction. It is not lustful for a man to see a beautiful woman and to find her attractive. It is not lustful for a woman to recognize that a man is attractive. It is not lustful for a man or a woman to desire God's gift of intimacy and closeness. God has designed us male and female. He has designed the sexes to be appealing, to be desirable one to another. Recognizing and appreciating God's design is not lust. It is simply the good and natural design that God had for mankind that he created in his image. Well, there have been many attempts to describe just one attraction becomes distorted into something unholy and damning. Well, even if we lack the precise words to define it, we all know that a point exists in our mind when simple attraction gives birth to fantasy and lust. We recognize there is a point when the appreciation of beauty, the appreciation of something good that God has created, moves to the desire to respond in an inappropriate and unlawful manner. There are occasions when that good and natural desire that God has designed within men and women becomes misplaced. When it moves beyond recognition and appreciation and is directed toward a person to whom it is not appropriate. The natural desire built into the race of men is easily misplaced from its intended realm and can lead them down to a path of destruction. Well, the best way I have heard this explained is that lust is that point when the only thing that keeps you from acting on the inappropriate desire is opportunity. So lust is the point when the only thing that keeps us from acting on the inappropriate desire is opportunity. It's that point when you would certainly act on an unrighteous desire if you simply had the ability or you were certain that you could do so without being caught or paying any consequences. In that case, the desire can safely be labeled lust and is therefore sinful. Of course, who can claim that they are not guilty? How many times have we been held back from sin only by our lack of opportunity, our lack of ability to actually go out and grab what we desired? Well, I believe what Scripture tells us in this passage and in others is that our thinking takes place in the real world. What we assume has no consequence because it exists only in our minds is in fact consequential, weighty, and real. Well, what do I mean by that? I think we tend to imagine that everything that takes place within our mind is somehow outside of the scope of reality, since we are the only ones that knows what's going on and taking place there. 
Even if we acknowledge that God knows our hearts and minds, our thoughts, we never take that to mean that our thoughts are part of what is real within God's creation, that they don't exist in reality. So what I mean by our thinking taking place in the real world is that God made us creative beings. That's a massive part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We are creative beings. We create with our hands and we create with our imaginations, within our minds. The products of our hands and the products of our imaginations, even though our, what is in our mind will never be seen by men, they are both products that are real and tangible to God. Beloved, let us never forget that God exists everywhere. He sees everything. He knows everything. Since our thoughts and imaginations are as open before God as our physical actions are, our thinking takes place in the real world under his dominion. If it helps, think of all of creation being a figment of God's imagination. It is something that exists within God that he has spoken into reality out of his mind. That might be a little bit of a mind bender, but all of creation exists within God and came out of his mind. And it is real, tangible. We are a part of that. In a very real sense, what takes place in our minds, what is the fantasy, the good, the bad, in our minds is also real and tangible, though we don't have the means of seeing it one to another. There is nowhere we can hide from God, not even with our thoughts. Beloved, we need to forsake the false and damning notion that something is safe and innocent as long as it remains within the confines of our heart and mind. There is no place where it is safe to sin against the infinite God. There is no place where it is safe to sin against the infinite God. God desires, commands, that we take just as much care, perhaps even more so, of what goes in our hearts and minds than we do with what we do with our physical bodies. To the care for the state of our minds, we must care for what is allowed to enter into our minds. Because our minds are fed by what we take in from the world around us. D.A. Carson wrote this, said, imagination is a God-given gift, but if it is fed dirt by the eye, it will be dirty. All sin, not least sexual sin, begins with the imagination. Therefore, what feeds the imagination is of maximum importance in the pursuit of kingdom righteousness. Well, once again, just as Jesus did when he revealed the punishment that was deserved for the murderous desires of the heart, Jesus reveals just how seriously God takes sin, even the sins of the mind. 
Well, after he warned the people that a heart set on sin is guilty, even if no action is followed, Jesus continued, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Well, the prospect of hell is the most serious threat that Christ could make. We cannot simply glaze over this warning. When Christ warns of hell, we ought to pay attention to take it seriously. Open our eyes and our ears. Hell is real. Hell is going to be filled with people that did not believe that they would deserve to go there. And according to Matthew chapter 7, hell is going to have many people within it who even claimed the name of Christ, who did many big things in the name of Christ, yet they did not know him. Scripture is very clear about what is going to happen to those who are not found in Christ. And Christ made it crystal clear that those who truly believe in him will obey his commandments. Jesus' message is here in the strongest terms that anything, anything that keeps you from being obedient to him must be abandoned with extreme prejudice. Anything that threatens our soul, no matter how difficult or painful it might be, must be gotten rid of. If we count anything as more precious to us than obedience to Christ, we will pay for our idolatry in the fires of hell for eternity. Of course, I do not believe in this passage that Jesus is actually advocating for the mutilation of our bodies, for the desecration of a human body made in the image of God. Now, he is saying that to pluck out an eye or to cut off a hand is to lose that which is most precious to us. Because, of course, if the sin is the sin in our heart, sin of our imagination, if in our minds and in our hearts we are sinning against an infinite God, then simply ripping out an eye or cutting off a hand could not fix that problem. But the analogy is that those things that are precious to us, even the most precious parts of our bodies, are not worth holding on to if they cause us to sin against our God. The strong language indicates that even if what we hold most, if it's what we hold most dear, if it threatens our souls, it is a cancer that must be quickly and finally cut off from our bodies, or rather cut out from our lives. No temporal pleasure is worth eternal damnation. How easily we ignore the warnings of Scripture and think that we can continue to sin in this life, yet somehow escape the judgment that will come. If we would have victory in our struggle against the flesh, we must do everything that we can to war against sin. We must 
kill sin. We must hate our sin in our hearts so much that everything that causes us to sin is expendable. We must love Christ so much that anything that turns us away from him is expendable. There are many things that are lawful and yet that might cause us to fall into sin. Each of us will have different areas in our lives that we simply cannot allow ourselves the luxury of enjoying. Someone else might be able to, in good conscience and in faithfulness, yet for us, it is a recognized, regular means of stumbling. And those things, no matter how much we feel like we should be able to enjoy them, no matter how safely someone else might be able to enjoy them, if they cause us to sin, we must be willing to cut off out of our lives and abandon Our hatred of sin must be greater than our love for the things of this world and the pleasures of this earth. True love of God will cause us to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. Remember that true disciples, when they have been made like their master, when they have been made mature, will be like their master. So if we would hate sin, we must grow our affections for God. We cannot remain neutral towards those things of God and have any hope that we will find freedom from sin. The cure for false and sinful desires is not to empty ourselves of any desire, but rather it is to grow in the desire for God to cling to the things of God so tightly that there is no room for the world within us. This principle is easily applied to every area of our lives, yet there is a unique warning to the sins of sexual immorality. There are many battles that we are called to fight in the Christian life, we are told to stand firm against a great many evils and temptations around us. We are even told to stand firm against the devil himself, to resist him. James 4, 7. However, when it comes to sexual temptation, we are told to flee, to run away, to get away, to save yourself. Just like Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife, even though it caused him to end up in prison, even though he faced many hardships because of it, he fled. He didn't go back for his cloak. He didn't think of what else might happen. He ran away and fled from sexual immorality. There is something particularly dangerous about sexual sins. There's something particularly important about sexual purity. We cannot play around with this issue. Our society has made a sport out of sex and lust and unrealistic romance. Yet Christ tells us this is no game. Our very souls are on the line. 
flee from every sort of sexual immorality. Time and again in the Old Testament, the wanderings of Israel after other gods is described in the terms of a wife searching out other lovers. God is pictured as the faithful husband whose wife continually prostitutes herself. And this kind of picture does continue in the New Testament. The church is made up of all the redeemed of Christ. The church is called the bride of Christ. The institution of marriage was designed in the New Testament, laid out clearly to show us that it is a picture of the relationship of the Son of God to his bride, the church. Jesus is the faithful husband who loves and serves his bride, even to the point where he laid down his life for her. And he works tirelessly to present her perfect and blameless. And in that relationship, the church is called to be faithful to Christ. For the Christian to look to any of, anything other than Christ for their greatest desire and fulfillment is for them to commit adultery against their rightful husband. It's called idolatry serving any other God than the one true God alone. Because idolatry is spiritual adultery. Therefore, sexual immorality, and adultery in particular, is radically offensive to God. Marriage was designed to display the wonder of the gospel, and the marriage covenant, when it is broken... The picture of the gospel is spat upon and mocked. Adultery is not simply a breach in the marriage covenant. It is an all-out attack on the gospel itself. God designed sexual appetite and enjoyment as a gift to be fulfilled and enjoyed within the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. The rapture of the sexual union gives us a small glimpse at the inexplicable joy that the bride of Christ will forever experience when she is united with her husband in the age to come. But like everything else in this world, sexuality has been hugely corrupted and deformed by sin. In our fallen world, sexual appetites have moved beyond their natural design. C.S. Lewis wrote about how grossly out of proportion the sexual drive has become in modern society. He said this, You can get a large audience together for a striptease act, that is, to watch a girl undress on stage. Now suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing out a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in this country something has gone terribly wrong with the appetite for food? And would not anyone who had grown up in a different world think there was something equally queer about the state of the sex instinct among us? Our society is completely obsessed with sex. Nearly everything around this serves to fuel this appetite 
All the advertising, TV, movies, books, even sports, health, and fitness. We are continually told that it is those who freely give in to their sexual desires that will be the most happy and satisfied in this life. We are promised fulfillment in sexual reckless abandon, yet those who attempt to find fulfillment there end up broken and alone time after time after time. Of course, we cannot have any discussion about lust and the idolatry of mental adultery without having a discussion about the dirty little secret that has become all too routine among professing Christians. Of course, I'm talking about the use of pornography and the tendency that is all too common in many Christian circles, if not to excuse it by word, then to trivialize it by action. Far too long, churches have viewed the celebration and distortion of lust found in pornography as a problem that doesn't have a fix. It has become almost acceptable, at least normal, to have groups of men calling themselves accountability groups week after week confess to the continued abuse of pornography. Man after man will confess to having messed up again this week. And then they offer what results to essentially a half-hearted slap on the wrist with a defeatist pledge to try better again this week. I want to comment on something that I believe is clear. Perhaps to change how we think about this blight on society that I think we need to undertake if we would stop leaving room for such immorality within the church. Addiction to pornography and the wicked industries that it flows from is not the same as simply struggling from time to time with a displaced desire for the intimacy and physical satisfaction that God has prescribed in marriage. It is not the same as simply desiring what God has given as a good gift. And I believe it is even, even greater evil than is represented in our text today. Well, to illustrate what I mean by that, let me use an example from last week's passage on misplaced anger. We all understand how easy it can be to have anger rise within us in response to an offense that we see against us or against someone else, and then to direct that anger in an unholy and an inappropriate manner. Christ has taught us that it is wrong to hold on to anger toward another, yet we understand that it often comes about from a good and natural reaction to an act of evil. There is such a thing as a righteous indignation that wells within a Christian in the face of injustice. And the problem comes when we take that natural and good response and we start believing and acting that we ourselves are the primarily one, the ultimate one who has been offended rather than it being an offense against God. So we seek to take it into our own hands rather than letting the vengeance belong to God, trusting that he will make all things right. So we do not mis excuse misguided anger, yet we understand it is a common struggle for most, most of us we work to help one another recognize what brings about the impulse to unrighteous anger and then trust instead in the justice and mercy of God. 
So we don't excuse, but we understand, and we help one another into greater and greater obedience and sanctification. However, how would we respond to someone who told us that they had been fantasizing about taking vengeance into their own hands? How would we respond to someone who told us they were fantasizing about, being physic- about physically assaulting someone, about torturing somebody, about killing them slowly and painful? Would we look at that as simply a, a misdirection of a good and natural impulse? Man, I sure hope not. We would recognize that is something categorically different. That is not a mere struggle with how to direct what we were designed to experience. We would recognize somebody that is experiencing those kind of fantasies that they need help. They need real spiritual intervention. We would rightly have concern for the spiritual state of a professing Christian where we to find out that this kind of darkness was commonplace within them. That simply isn't in the realm in which a Christian can long dwell. Well, let's take that same kind of reasoning back to our text today. Desiring physical or even emotional intimacy with someone with whom you are not joined in marriage is sinful. It is a distortion and a misdirection of a good and natural desire that God has given us. And yes, Jesus does even call that adultery. However, there is a categorical difference between misplaced good and natural desire and the indulgence and enjoyment of what can only be described as sexual slavery, abuse, and simulated rape. That is exactly what pornography is. That is what it does. That is what it celebrates. That is more akin to fantasizing over the physical abuse, torture, and death of human beings than it is a simple misplaced natural impulse. We would not easily tolerate those in our midst who have such a penchant for physical destruction... We ought not so to trivialize those who have a penchant for such sexual destruction. Perhaps this will help us distinguish the one from the other. To help us disassociate misplaced natural desire from something that is totally perverse and grotesque. When you are struggling with a good and natural impulse that is simply misdirected, It is something which you can easily turn to scripture and prayer. You can trust that God's spirit will clarify and restrain the direction of that desire. And we can yet, even in the midst of it, recognize God's good design in giving us those desires. In that case, you likely don't even have to repent of the impulse, the desire for intimacy. You simply need God's spirit to help you channel that desire in a way that is appropriate to his glory. Perhaps you need to pray that God will bring you a spouse or that God will teach you to be satisfied with the one he has given you or that God will teach you to be satisfied being single if that is his will for you. There are other impulses that men and women feel and thoughts that come into their minds 
where the only recourse is to repent of them entirely. Impulses that there is no ability to recognize the goodness of God's design at their base. There is no ability to simply turn the direction, try to re-channel that impulse into something holy. Things that come into the mind and the heart of men and women that the only appropriate response for is horror at the depravity within us. Then our hope is the promise of God that he will cleanse us from such wickedness when we repent of it and turn to him. Lust is a cancer that destroys the soul. Where lust abounds, there is no satisfaction. There is no joy. There is no contentment. Those are the things that are promised by lust, but it is unable to deliver any of its promises. There is only unsatisfied desire and passion for what can never deliver the happiness promised. There's a question we must ask ourselves. Do we believe that what goes on in our minds is real and tangible? I've been working to make that point today, but do we believe that is true? Do we believe that that what goes in our mind and our hearts is something which we will be held accountable for in front of God? And if we believe that, do we even care? Are we going to take these words of Christ seriously? Are we content to play the game in the eyes of men simply to look good to those around us? Or do we actually desire to be holy as God has commanded us to be holy? Do we care more about holiness than we do about our movies, TVs, books, magazines, or the jokes that we like to laugh about? How about our wardrobe? Do we care about the messages we send to our children by what we let them watch and what we let them wear? Are we willing to reevaluate everything in our lives to not only protect our own souls, but the souls of our children and the souls of all those who are around us? You see, when we think of those things we choose to stand up for and war against, and those things with which we often flee from, we have things backwards. Too often we continue to stare down, we continue to try and battle against sexual immorality in our midst, and yet we turn and flee like cowards from all other kinds of spiritual warfare and conflict. This is backwards. We often remove ourselves from the possibility of having to struggle and endear in the face of spiritual difficulties. We avoid spiritual conflict. We run from those conversations or interactions in which it might be costly for us to profess the name of Christ or which it might cost something to act in obedience. We avoid those times where it might be difficult to be identified with Christ. Yet we are told time and again in scripture to stand and resist even to the devil himself. But what about those conversations and situations where we might be tempted to fall into sexual immorality 
Do we avoid them like the plague? Do we steer clear of anything that might make us compromise or become uncomfortable in our purity? Not usually. Somehow, when it comes to sexual morality, that, that realm of sin that, that Christ has commanded us to flee far from, we have convinced ourselves that we can hold fire to our bosom and somehow not be burned. We flee from that which we should stand and fight, and we presume to embrace and try to hold out against that which we are commanded to flee. What can possibly explain that action but a love for sin? What must we flee if we would be free from sexual immorality? What is more important in our lives than our faithfulness to Christ? Christ is clear about those things that will cause us to stumble. By our choice to continue in those things that may bring us down, we clearly show where our affections and our allegiances lie. May God grant us freedom from the lusts of this world. May we see Christ as more beautiful, more desirable, more precious, more wonderful than everything in this world that would seek to draw us away from him. Father, this again is a, a passage that is too difficult for us. I'm not ashamed to say that it is beyond my ability. It's beyond the ability of anyone hearing my voice. Yet I know, I know it is not beyond the ability of your spirit within your children. We do not simply need to resign ourselves to being slaves to sin when you have made us free. Banish the tolerance of slavery to sin among your people. Grant us freedom. Grant us holiness. Grant us obedience to Christ. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to the table of our Lord. What better place to turn when we have felt the, the crushing weight of the demands of the law and our inability to satisfy God's perfect standard? What better place to turn into that which symbolizes and reminds us of the broken body and shed blood of our Savior who died to pay for our failures and rose again to newness of life that we might in him have life and righteousness and hope. So if this morning you are walking in obedience to Christ, if you are resting in his finished work on your behalf, and there is nothing in your conscience that bids you 
remain seated, then I invite you to come forward to take of the bread and the drink as we are obedient to the command of Christ to remember what he has done for us and to celebrate his finished work. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave thanks and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, forgiveness of sins. Continue that I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And all of God's children long for that day, long to be with our Savior, long for this battle against the flesh to be over, and be able to enjoy what we were created for in perfect union with our Lord. Father, we give you all glory and honor and praise. We thank you that you have given us this ordinance as a means of remembering, a physical way to hold something tangible, to recall your sacrifice for us, the significance of your broken body and shed blood, and a sweet taste of something that we can long for, long for in the future when we will be with our Lord, will be with our groom, and that celebration feast, celebrating what he has done for us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.